The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Isaiah 5, 8, 6 through 10. Is not this the fast I choose, to lose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, and let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? It is, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then you, your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness, and if you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jonah. Great job, buddy. Twice today. Had to get up early for that. Appreciate you. Super job, bud. Takes courage. You know that, right? Um, so everybody, we are, we are uh, entering the home stretch. We've got a couple more weeks in our series on Isaiah. And uh, today I'd like to start with uh, a quote, of course, from C.S. Lewis, because why not? That's what we do. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this about his conception of God. He says, my idea of God has to be shattered from time to time. God shatters it himself. God is the great iconoclast. So you don't need to Google that. I'll define it in a second. Could we not almost say that this shattering of who we think God is, is one of the marks of his presence? So the word iconoclast, it means someone who goes on the attack against traditional beliefs and assumptions that are wrong. Okay? So when Lewis says that God is the great iconoclast, God is the one who goes on the attack against beliefs and assumptions that are wrong, even ones that have been held for years and even centuries. And so our text here is given, given to us, like every text of scripture, inside a context. So Israel's dealing with the reality of captivity, the reality of, of life just not going the way that anybody had ever dreamed that it would. Uh, Jerusalem is in ruins, and they don't know what their future is, and they're hurting. And Oftentimes, when we're hurting, that's when the truth about what's in our hearts and the truth about what we believe this relationship with God is supposed to, to function like comes out of us. Oftentimes, under pressure, that's when it comes out. It's like tea in a, you know, immersed in hot water. It, what's in there comes out. And 
That's what's happening with Israel. And, and, and God comes in as the great iconoclast, the great contrarian to their, their understanding about how God and them is supposed to work. And he's attacking this false belief. And I'll kind of contemporize it for our situation. This is the belief that God is attacking. That if you go to church, pray, read your Bible, and perform religious duties like fasting, which is mentioned here, you'll get a good return on investment. God will reward you with the life that you want, with the life that you think you deserve. So God is attacking that belief. You know, earlier in the chapter, there's an interrogation that happens, but it, it's not the kind of interrogation we might imagine in the prophets. It's actually Israel interrogating God, if you could imagine that. Okay, their life isn't going the way they want it, want it, want it to, and so, so they say to God, why have we fasted and you don't see it? Why do we humble ourselves and you don't notice? And God answers and says this, basically, your religion is a farce. Here's my answer. You wanna know why I'm not listening to your prayers? Because you have no interest in being the answer to somebody else's prayer. Namely, those who are in harder situations than you are. Here's my answer, God says to them. Your religion is a farce because you mistreat your workers, you ignore the spiritual, economic, material, social, and all the other needs of the poor and the underdogs, underdogs and the weak in your midst. Do you really think that all of your God stuff makes up for your neglect of your hurting neighbor right in front of your face? See, so the great iconoclast, as Lewis says, He's attacking the cherished belief that personal piety equals genuine faith. There's so much more to it. Personal piety is part of, general faith, uh, uh, part of genuine faith, but, but it's not all of it. You know, like James said, faith without works is dead. And so uh, Tim Keller, uh, you know, kind of remarking on this text said this, you know, giving spiritual or giving special attention to and, and making effort and investing resources to elevate the weak and to elevate the poor out of a broken situation is actually a grand symptom, he says, of genuine faith. So I'd like to talk about that grand symptom or lack thereof of genuine faith under four headings. And, and the first is the sin of neglect, which is something that Isaiah points out. Then there's the sin of blame shifting. And then there's the privilege on the positive side of burden bearing. And then I'd like to talk to you uh, about why it's a privilege to bear burdens. First, let's talk about what Isaiah does, the sin of neglect. Basically, Isaiah is, is trying to communicate the same thing that, that James, the half-brother of Jesus, does in his whole faith without works is dead um, you know, teaching. You cannot love God and ignore your neighbor. Those two things are mutually exclusive. They, they just, it's, not that they just, it's not just that they don't go together. They can't go together. Because loving your neighbor as yourself is the flip side of, of, of the same coin that has on the other side, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You know, sociologists call this you know, Israelite behavior 
privatization, the privatization of faith. Treating faith as if it's supposed to be something personal, something that's hard to discern or even notice because you don't want to make people uncomfortable with your belief system and so on. You know, you've got all these ideas like sin and, and repentance and, and turning to God and obedience and faithfulness. And those are uncomfortable subjects in the public square and in the public conversation. And so just shut up about it. Keep it to yourself, privatization. There's a different kind of privatization that, that, that Israel is assuming here, and it's this. We're going to keep our faith to ourselves. We're gonna keep the nature and character of our God to ourselves. We're not gonna share it. It's not going to intersect with our public lives. And so the great Jonathan Edwards, who was one of the earliest presidents of Princeton University, also a pastor and theologian, was a bit of an iconoclast himself. And he was speaking against you know, this same kind of behavior in his own context of ignoring the poor but claiming to love God. And he says this, Christian love disposes a person to be public spirited. I love that phrase, public spirited. A man of a right spirit, Edward says, is not a man of narrow and private views but is greatly concerned for the good of the community to which he belongs and particularly to the city where he resides. And so if you have this continuum, and let, let's say genuine faith is, is like right here, but over here is, 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 is a counterfeit, and over here's another counterfeit on the, the, the polar opposite extreme. Over here is what, what some call the social gospel. And the social gospel is all about the second half of the great commandment. Um, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, the, the purpose of life is, is to love other people, to, to elevate people, to be um, you know, aligned and associated and connected with the causes of justice and, and mercy and, and generosity and, and so on. But the social gospel also disposes of the need for things like personal conversion, faith in Jesus Christ, uh, repentance from sin, being a regular and vital part of a local church, and centering your life around Jesus. Like these things are disposable. What really matters is that you're good to other people. Now on the other side of the continuum is what you call the personal gospel, which is, which is just as non-gospel as the social gospel. Because while the personal gospel emphasizes things like conversion, faith, repentance, church, Jesus, and so on, it's not sufficient because it disposes of the imperative to love your neighbors who are near and to love your neighbors who are in need and who are hurting. They have to go together. And if one is absent, then both are absent. That's what Isaiah is saying. It's troubling, but that's, that's what he's after. And in verse nine, he uses the, the word if several times. He says, if you take away the yoke or the burden of those who are hurting in your midst, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and the sad, and, and if you satisfy the desire of the, the afflicted, if you invite the homeless into your home. You know, the, the repeat use of the word if implies that they haven't been doing any of these things. They have privatized and hoarded the goodness of God to themselves and called it virtue. Rich Mullins um, has this clever little song called Screen Door, and he sums it up pretty well. He says, faith without works, it just ain't happening. <laughs> 
It's like a song you can't sing. It's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. You know, Jesus unpacks this in his parable in Matthew 25. It's the parable of the sheep and the goats. And he says that you know, at the end of time, on, on the day of judgment, Jesus as the great judge, the one who is coming to judge the living and the dead, as we recite in the Apostles' Creed pretty regularly before communion, he's going to separate all human beings into two categories of people. On, on, on his right will be the sheep, the, the, the ones with true faith, and on his left will be those that he calls the goats, the counterfeits. And he says this, to the people on my left, I will say the words, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and thirsty and a stranger. I was in need of clothes. I was sick. I was in prison and you didn't look after me. It's basically the summary of it. And the people will say, when didn't we look after you? And he will respond, whatever you did not do for the least of these, whatever you didn't do for the poor, whatever you didn't do for the underdog, whatever you didn't do for the person in your midst that was hurting, whatever you didn't do, you, you were deciding not to do it to me. I am so associated with human pain. I am so tethered to human pain that the further away you are and, 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 and remove yourself from human pain, the further you remove yourself from me. And the closer you get and, and the more you lean into human pain, the closer you are to where I am. I'm a physician after all. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I didn't come for the you know, happy all the time. I, 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 I came for those who are injured, who are weak. You know, translation, God is drawn toward the underdog. And if I'm pious and if I'm religious, but there's no discernible sign of a social conscience, then the truth is I'm just playing house with God. You know, first John, the, you know, the apostle John, the beloved disciple says, whoever, if, if anyone has the world's goods and closes his heart to the needs of those in front of him, the love of God does not abide. I don't care how much you read your Bible. I don't care if you've memorized Isaiah. You don't have the love of God if you ignore the needs around you. That's John. That's like the nice guy, the gentle guy. The guy who, you know, is hugging Jesus and calls himself the beloved disciple. So tender. And yet he's getting all Peter on us on this one. And then Isaiah in chapter one, God says, I find no pleasure in your sacrifices. Your religion wants to make me puke. It makes me want to puke. Because it's not translating into the same kind of tenderness and advocacy toward the weak in your midst that I have given to you when you needed tenderness and when you needed advocacy and when you needed a defender. You have to give it away once you have it because there's too much of it just to be contained in you. But then it gets worse. They add insult to injury by, by shifting blame. Victim shaming. 
There are many in Israel who are blaming the poor for their poverty, blaming the homeless for their homelessness, blaming the oppressed for the burdens that they're carrying. In verse nine, the language Isaiah uses is, you're pointing fingers at the very people that I am inviting you to love and serve and lift up out of their burdens. You're pointing fingers at them instead. You're trying to distance yourself. And in in pointing the finger, you are speaking wickedness. That's the word Isaiah uses. You know, our familiar refrains around, you know, this is, you know, the poor are the poor because they're lazy. They just need to get a job. They just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, apply themselves. Well, what if they don't have boots? What if they have no means to, to, to procure for themselves a pair of boots? Pull yourself up by the bootstraps doesn't happen. Because it can't. You know, this finger pointing, this victim shaming, it, 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 it fails to account for the fact, the fact that the field is not level. For people living in Brentwood and people living in North Nashville, it is not level. Let's, let's just imagine a hypothetical scenario where you've got a family of three. Two parents, um, you know, good wage earners, and they have one 10-year-old daughter, and they look at their 10-year-old daughter one day, they say, we have to have a family meeting. So mom and dad, we're feeling a little bit frustrated with you because our family budget is $60,000 a year, and we really need you to contribute your third. We need you to contribute $20,000 to the family budget to make it happen. Because it's not fair that that the two of us have to bear your burden too. And of course, the 10-year-old girl is like, how? Where do I, well, if you babysit in Nashville, you know, maybe you'll make that kind of money. (laughs) But nobody's calling a 10-year-old to babysit, so it's still a problem. But like, what would we say to those parents? Just wicked. How would you, how, how, how could you put that kind of burden on a child? Do you not even recognize the power differential between you and her? Where you have, you have earning power, she doesn't. And yet you're, you're telling her that she needs to rise up and be your equal as an earner and as a contributor. The role of a child is to be taken care of. The role of a child is to be empowered and and uplifted to the point where where an opportunity is created for her to become independent and a contributor at some point in time. But right now, her role is to be served and cared for and uplifted and empowered by you. I mean, that's what we'd say if we're reasonable. And yet in society and in cities, this is how we act as grownups toward other grown-ups who are maybe even less empowered than our 10-year-old children in terms of their access to resources and networks and education and all the wonderful educators that we prayed for today. Like we pray prayers like that assuming, yeah, everybody gets an education. No, they don't. Not everybody has access. 19% of our city lives below the poverty level. Some have the power, others don't. Some have the money and the education and the networks, others do not. You know, Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke 
um, stellar theologian, he um, explains the use of, of the words righteous and wicked when, when the two go together. And he says, these are what those two words usually mean when you see them in the Old Testament prophetic context. He says, when you see the words righteous and wicked in the Bible, the righteous are those who disadvantage themselves for the community and for those in need, but the wicked are willing to hurt the community or exploit others in order to advantage themselves. The righteous say, much of what I have belongs to the community. The wicked say, no, no, it's all mine. And so, so the 19% in our city who live below poverty, even if, even if there's very little personal interface, they are our responsibility. They are our concern. Which brings us to the privilege that this is. This should never, for the people of God who have been rescued out of their own poverty, feel like a scold from the prophets. It should feel like an invitation. It should feel like a wake-up call. It should feel like smelling salt, saying, come on back, you know, wake, wake back up. And realize what you get to be part of here. You get to be part of the mission of God. You get to, to, to be an answer to somebody else's prayer, even as you pray to God to answer yours. You get to participate with whatever amount of power and resources and networks that, that, that God has entrusted to you. And he's speaking to a y'all, he's speaking to communities. However, you can pull together your power, your resources, your networks in order to lift the weak. It's an incredible privilege. You know, he says, this is the fast. The Lord says, this is the fast. This is the religion. This is the devotion that I choose to loose the bonds, to undo the straps of the yoke. Now, the yoke was a very heavy farm tool that, that rested on the back of, of animals that they called beasts of burden, like the, the farm animals that carried the really heavy stuff on the farm. The, the yoke was that really heavy instrument. And what, what he's saying is, you know, the privilege that you get to have as the, the people of God is to, to be, participate in removing that yoke from the back, removing the burden from the back of those who are in a weaker position than you are, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Now let's say that there, there's a race that every person in our city is called to run. And let's call that race life. Let's call that race survival. Let's call it race thriving, flourishing. Let's call it life. And to survive and to not get behind each person in that race is required by the universe to run the, run the 100 yard dash in 22 seconds. Now, now for most of us, that's, that's not gonna be difficult because like the average like out of shape teenage boy can run the 100 yard dash in 16 seconds. It's true because I Googled it this morning. And so that gives us all an extra six seconds, right? And so Scott Sauls gets up to the line and Scott has a YMCA membership because he can afford it. Scott has the time to go to the YMCA because his job doesn't require him not to. Uh, Scott, his legs are in well enough shape to, to, to finish in str the strong time of 18 seconds in the 100 yard dash, leaving four seconds to spare. He's got his Lululemon shorts and his, you know, 
Featherlight Nikes that he got at, at uh, Fleet Feet after he got his feet fitted and customized by an electronic machine that's awesome. And so Scott's ready to go. He's going to win this game called Life. But then Scott notices right next to him in the lane right next to him is a single mother from Antioch. And she also has to finish in the same amount of time that Scott does, 22 seconds. The problem is there's no way for her to run the race except by carrying her two children on her own back, her yoke. Oh, she could make it if it was just one of them. She could clear in 21 seconds. And so what's Scott do? <laughs> I'm gonna win this race. She can take care of herself. Her problems are her problems. We'll let the government deal with it. You know, let the nonprofits deal with it. But it's not my responsibility. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna crush this thing. I'm gonna come in second, maybe. She can't make it. And so Scott's other choice is, look, I can't make it either with both of your children on my back, but I think I can clear in 22 seconds with one of them on my back. So give me one of them and, and, and I'll give them back at the finish line. Silly comparison, but I hope it helps you make the connection about the race of life. There are all kinds of poverty, by the way. There's material poverty and economic poverty. There's also vocational poverty. 85% of the people in the world, according to Gallup, are just kind of devastated and soul crushed by, by the work that they've been given to do. You know, there's social poverty, relational poverty, which, which is actually what's felt most deeply by the, the poor, which I'll get to in a second, even more than material and economic poverty. The, the, the material poor feel the poverty of loneliness and isolation and the shame that comes from that. And so what God is saying through Isaiah is you've got the privilege to carry a child on your back to help bear a burden and you both get to finish. You both get to win but you both won't win unless one of those babies goes on your back and slows you down a little bit. But that's what the righteous do. The righteous give up their own speed. They give up their own win sometimes so that the weak aren't left behind. So the weak can survive. Why would we be attracted to this because of what verse seven says, you know, the true fast, true religion, you know, James says it's to care for widows and orphans, which is representative of a bigger thing. The true fast is to share your bread with the hungry. You're gonna enjoy what you share a lot more than you get to enjoy what you hoard. Just take my word for it, it's true. To bring the homeless poor into your house, to cover the naked and not hide yourself from to hide yourself from is to avoid. So to not avoid, and here's, here's what he calls the poor to Israel, your own flesh. What? My own flesh? Your own flesh. You have to treat the woman right next to you from Antioch with the two babies on her back like she's your own family. Thus saith the Lord. Yeah, care as much about her thriving as you do about your own kids thriving. Thus saith the Lord. She's your own flesh. How do I do that? 
Well, you may not ever be able to get there emotionally because of course, you know, the child that you've carried and raised, like there's an emotional attachment there. But in terms of your, your loyalty attachment and of my loyalty attachment, God is saying, look, the human community is your family and you owe a debt of love to the human community in ways that you're able to participate in that. So, so raise your hand if you can imagine this scenario. A, one of your family members is sad, floundering, and falling apart. And B, you are happy. Can you envision those two scenarios happening at the same time? If you can, what's wrong with you? Right? Like, like none of us is, is, is going to call ourselves a happy person if, if somebody who's dear to us is floundering and falling apart. So there's this book called Voices of the Poor, which is a series of, of, of interviews, of transcripted interviews with, with people who are actually live under the poverty level. And like I said a minute ago, the greatest poverty from the perspective of the poor in the balance is not material poverty as much as social poverty. Because here's what happens. Like if the social poverty piece, the isolation, the it is not good to be alone piece is solved, if, if the moment we, we start to treat somebody like family, the moment we become deeply committed to their not being aloneness, the material, economic, you know, vocational stuff follows in its trail. And so one of the, the people living in poverty in, in this book, Voices of the Poor, said this, for a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. We are cripples. We're afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. And there are 19% of the people in our city bear, bear the burden of, of this narrative, or at least hear that voice and, and struggle to disbelieve it because it feels so true so often. And, and the, 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 the greatest excuse ever made by people, who, people of faith who have means is, well, Jesus said the poor you will always have with you, so there's nothing we can do about it, and therefore, we're just gonna live our lives and, and, and let Jesus take care of it. And that, that's actually a huge part of the picture. <laughs> you know, Jesus will take care of all of this brokenness in due time. Thanks be to God. But, but, but Jesus, through his apostles, demonstrates that there actually is an exception to his statement that the poor will always be with you. And that's wherever the church shows up. Wherever the church shows up, poverty disappears. At least that's what the New Testament says. The closer the church is, the further away poverty and isolation are. Acts chapter four, this was how it worked out. There were no needy people among them. None, empty set. Why? Because no one in the church community claimed that their possessions belonged to them. It was there to be shared. You know, one of the commentaries I read preparing for this message said that the church, the local church is actually the model home 
for the worldwide neighborhood that God is building. You know what the model home is? The model home is like, if there's a new development that happens, the model home is the one that the developers put in first, you know, to kind of give a signal or show a sign of what all the rest of the homes in the neighborhood are gonna look like once, once this thing is built out. And so what, what this commentary is saying is that, that the local church is actually the model home for the world to look at about where God is taking every square inch of, of this earth. And it will one day be called the new heaven and the new earth. And there will be no more injustice. There will be, as Revelation says, no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. There will be no more poverty, no more vocational poverty, economic, social, emotional poverty. It will be gone. But what God is saying here to us is you get an opportunity not only to get a whiff of that yourself, but to provide a whiff of it, of what's coming. Even if it's just a whiff, a whiff is pretty amazing. A whiff can give you a lot of hope. And my friend uh, from New York, he's a pastor, his name is John Tyson. Um, and I, you know, ministers, we ministers, we, we listen to other people's sermons sometimes just to get preached to, because we get tired of hearing ourselves talk sometimes. And John is one of the people that I, I go back to a good bit. And uh, I was listening to one of his messages while using my YMCA membership um, this week. Uh, and uh, it, was a, it was a sermon not unlike this one. And in that sermon, he told a story of a church like ours that cares deeply for vulnerable children. It's staggering just to look around Christ Pres and to, to think about all of, the, all of the people who have invested in adoption, in foster care, in coming around those in support of people who adopt and, and, and participate in foster care, of, of vulnerable children, of children with special needs, of children with disabilities. It's staggering just to think about what has already begun at Christ's presence. So, so John Tyson was telling the story of another church that is well-resourced like ours. Foster care became a thing in, in their church in, in, in similar ways that special needs and disabilities have become a thing in ours. And foster care is starting to become in ours as well. And they rallied enough people in their church where, where they just got tons of households that said, we are in for bringing foster children into our home. But, but they realized they also needed to rally concentric circles around them of people who would come in and support them, maybe people who weren't able to foster themselves, but, but, but who could in various ways come around as support. And then they went to the government leaders in their state and asked the question, how many unplaced foster kids are there in our state? And the number was given, and the answer was, our church will take all of them. We right now, Christ Presbyterian, this is such an exciting thing. We are right now sitting on top of four and a half million dollars of undesignated cash because of your generosity. And what's so exciting is that we're, going, we're entering a season right now to figure out how are we going to not hoard that amount, but, but give it all away. In a similar way, where, you know, we're not gonna change the world by ourselves, but, but is there a dent that these resources that God, for some crazy reason, has entrusted to us, is there a way that we can make a, a bigger dent? And you get to be part of that. See, here's the thing, here's the thing that can unguilt you from this whole thing. 
is that God does not call individuals to care for the world's burdens on their own. That's part of why he gives us a church. So it's a we thing. I do the part that I'm able to do. You do the part you're able to do. Maybe your part, you can pray. And that's all you're able to do because you're not resourced. You don't have the time. You don't have the energy. You've got 15 other responsibilities. Uh, Or maybe you are one of those people that, that you think, maybe God's calling me into that. I need support around me. Okay, but don't you love how the Bible unburdens us even as it tells us you need to bear burdens because it's saying y'all need to bear burdens. Feels a lot better when I got you and you and you and you next to me and a lot more possible. You know, we are, I think, at Christ Prez in a season of similar opportunity. We've certainly got the will. We've certainly got the spirit. I mean, today is what they call gotcha day. It's the day you sweep up your adopted kid for one of our pastors, for Russ and Lisa Ramsey, our Cool Springs congregation, are in China today to say gotcha to little Theo who's been in an orphanage with a heart defect for all of his life. He's gonna be part of our family soon. He's not the first. In fact, part of the Ramsey's bringing Theo home is to reunite him with one of his best friends who goes to Christ Prez Cool Springs, who was also in the orphanage. You can be, and you know how many of you helped to make that possible? No one person did it by themselves. We all kind of chipped in a little bit together and Theo's coming home, you guys. Like we have opportunity and we're going to have opportunity to do these sorts of things and to be that kind of church. And I I think you all really do want to go there. I know you do, because I know you. But our biggest reason is not how excited we're going to get about it. That's a good reason, but it's not the biggest reason. The biggest reason is that Jesus Christ has taken care of the poverty of our isolation. Of our, it is not good to be aloneness. You know, the UK has hired in the top level of their government, a minister of loneliness is such an epidemic issue. It's also an American issue. The New York Post reports that the average American has not made a new friend in the last five years. Senator Ben Sass just came out with a, a book called Them. And in that book, he says, we are literally dying of despair because of our loneliness enters Jesus who says, you will never be alone again. I will never leave you or or forsake you, but that's not all. I'm also gonna give you a bunch of other people around you who I will never leave and forsake. And so, so it'll be me over you and you all together alongside one another, not being alone anymore. And then you get to come to my table where I'm gonna feed you, but I'm gonna leave room there and I'm gonna ask you to leave room there so that you can help other people not be alone. To serve them in their poverty, whatever form their poverty might be vocational, economic, social, emotional, or material. Because when you were a stranger, I became your friend. When you were unclothed, I put my righteousness on you. When you were sick, I became your great physician. When you were in prison, I set you free. It is for freedom that I have set you free. As we sung, which comes straight out of the book of Galatians, which is gonna be our book study this year. Excited about that. Um, But right now, I presume we're hungry and I presume we're thirsty. And so now it's time for Pastor Todd to come lead us to the table of Jesus's grace where he says, come start having your loneliness cured. Thanks, buddy.